welcome to episode 24 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is August 23rd, and we're going to talk about the narratives, really the stories that we use to tell about emerging infectious diseases and how these shape our reactions to pandemics over the 20th and 21st centuries. Our guest for this episode is Priscilla Wald, who is the R. Florence Brinkley Distinguished Professor of English at Duke University. Priscilla is the author of two books. The first is Constituting Americans, Cultural Anxiety and Narrative Form. And the second is Contagious, Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative, which we're going to talk about in depth today. Contagious considers the intersection of medicine and myth in the idea of contagion and the evolution of contemporary stories we tell about the global health problem of emerging infectious diseases. Priscilla is currently working on another book titled Human Being After Genocide, and this work chronicles the challenge to conceptions of human being that emerged from scientific and technological innovation, as well as social and political thought after World War II. It tracks these changes through the rise of science fiction as a mass genre, and through the reflection in the debates surrounding the science and ethics of biotechnology. Priscilla is also the author and co-author of numerous articles and chapters. Some of the recent ones are Xenopolitics and Viral Cultures, Microbes and Politics in the Cold War. So hi, Priscilla. Hi, how are you? Very great. Thanks for coming on the show. Now, as usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 where we're at. So Merle, let's start with you and hear about how things are in Annapolis right now. Yeah, so we've officially been told we're working from home through the end of September. Um, Not that I was about to go in anytime soon, so I have to probably actually spend time to maybe set up my home office. But we also went to a small local park beach today, which is a nice beach because it has these individual paths down to the beach, and the beach itself is only about 15 feet long wide, so you really can only have one family per section. I'm glad you discovered this beach after telling us several times that there were no beaches you could go to anywhere around Annapolis. I mean, it, it's on the bay. It's not the nicest of beaches. It's kind of dirty. You know, I spent most of my time with a stick in my hand looking for jellyfish because there were a lot of jellyfish. So I was basically like taking them out of the water and throwing them onto the bank so my kids didn't get stung. So that was not the most relaxing of times on the beach. And then obviously my son just wanted to get in the water and play and I couldn't let him in more than, you know, four or five inches because I couldn't see all the jellyfish and it was kind of murky. So, you know, it's it's a beautiful wilderness place, but it, it wasn't the most relaxing. And the other thing that was fascinating is I went to this place earlier and we walked around the trails and what people were doing at the beach was walking up and down the beach, right? which doesn't really work if the beach is only 15 feet wide. So then every time someone would walk, you know, down the beach toward us, I had to like grab my kids and like pull them up to the top part of the beach before the people left. And they would just kind of look at us as if we were crazy. And I was like, well, you're not wearing masks. You're walking down the middle of the beach. You were going to walk right next to my kid. What is wrong with you? But apparently this message still hasn't uh, sunk home. And how are things in Jerusalem? Are you still doing your pretend thing or are you actually deciding to lock down finally? No, so the lockdown is still, I mean, people are still speaking about it, but it's not really going to happen anytime soon. I believe that it will likely happen in a limited manner during the high holidays in a few weeks. But in the meanwhile, at my university, we're getting ready to teach online during the fall semester, which will start only in October here. And maybe the big debate in Israel is a political, cultural, and religious debate surrounding a pilgrimage to a place called Uman in Ukraine. Now, this is a place where a lot of Orthodox Jews tend to go during the high holidays. So we're speaking about maybe some 30,000 people during the high holidays. And they really want to go there. And obviously, that would have issues for both Israel and Ukraine. I mean, on one hand, this group is quite strong politically in Israel. So the Israeli government is under pressure to allow them to go. But on the other hand, the Ukrainians don't really want 30,000 people showing up there and living in a really very crowded area over a few days, not to mention that the Israeli government will have to deal with them as they come back, likely, likely more infected than, the, than how they left. 
And it's really not the best thing for anyone. So we'll see how this ends up. Uh, this is supposed to happen in a few weeks, and I'll keep updating on this in future episodes. And what about you, Priscilla? Where are you now, and how is it there? I am in Durham, North Carolina, and um, our local government has been excellent. The state government has been excellent. Um, we were shut down very, very quickly in March, but unfortunately, a lot of people in North Carolina did not see the need to wear masks. So as a state, we haven't been the worst, but we have been one of the states that, for example, is barred from entering New York and New Jersey and uh, places that are more under control. I teach at Duke and we have some of our students, our first years, sophomores, and some upper class folk who have come back to campus and Duke is monitoring everything and We've only been back for a week, so we're all holding our breath. I don't know if you heard, but the University of North Carolina has had a massive outbreak. Someone told me, I, don't, I haven't confirmed this, but more people than in Scotland. I don't know what that rubric is, but that was what I was told. Yeah. So is Duke, because it's a private university, are they able to spend more money basically testing and quarantining people than UNC was able to? Is that kind of the difference at the moment? You know, I'm not sure because I don't know exactly what UNC did or didn't do, but Duke is a lot smaller than UNC. So I'm not sure if, I mean, money might be a big part of that issue, but the size of the university is considerably less and we didn't bring everybody back. So I think that is certainly a big difference. And there's a lot of hope that with supervision, we can do this safely We'll see. Duke is doing a very good job, I think, of monitoring what's going on, and we'll see what happens. I'm actually teaching a class that's called hybrid, so some of it is online. I'm team teaching it. It's an environment class, and we have one-third of our classes to be held outdoors. So we're really hoping that students are still here to participate in that. We'll see. So how are classes taught? I mean, other than this particular one, are... I mean, if, if not, everyone is back. Yeah, there's a range. So all of our classes have to have both an online and an asynchronous component, one way or another, some arrangement. So there are some faculty members that are teaching entirely in person and they record their classes or maybe teach a separate section for people online or something. A lot of classes are hybrid and many, many, many are also just entirely online. So we're doing our best. I know everybody I know has been working really hard to accommodate everybody and be respectful of student needs, including not everybody has good broadband. So we're doing our best. Sounds like a major challenge. It's a challenge. I mean, I try to look at crises as opportunities. You know, medically, it means turning point. So I try to see what good can come out of it. Obviously, this is terrible and I feel awful for these students and obviously for all the people who have had hardship of any kind, but for the students who don't have their full college experience, I'm trying to think of this as an opportunity to be more creative about teaching. Know that this forces me to rethink my pedagogy entirely, and I'm hoping that when we're back in person, some of these lessons will be really useful for me when I'm back physically in the classroom, which I really hope will be soon. I miss my personal contact with students. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So that's really good to hear that you have some mechanisms in place. And I guess for Duke in particular, you guys are trying to get things back in place so you can start the basketball season on time to an extent too. But let's uh, turn to uh, the topic of the interview today. Maybe you can define for us what the outbreak narrative is. Sure. So the outbreak narrative is the term that, that I give to a story, a conventional account, the way a story gets told over and over again and becomes very familiar. Um, and it's told in the media, it's told in popular culture of, about a catastrophic communicable disease that's really species-threatening or potentially that typically begins in the global south. And I know that's an older term. Um, not really as relevant now, but it, this comes from the 1980s and 90s. So it still has that feeling of the global south, and it threatens the global north. 
the story initially came from a 1989 meeting of infectious disease and tropical disease and other specialists who defined the phenomenon of disease emergence. And they talked about how there was a growing population and a shrinking world, and we were more and more interconnected, and we needed both everyday and large-scale changes if we were going to address the problem of what they called not only emerging diseases, but the coming plague, something like what we're living through now. And they said, we can't just rely on scientific medicine. But as this story circulated, it became more of an almost mythic apocalyptic battle, especially in popular culture, between representatives of scientific medicine and an animated virus over the fate of humanity. And it really ended up undermining the message that the participants in this meeting were trying to circulate. So that's what I look at. I'm just curious, when did you first learn about that meeting and when did you start first doing research on this idea? Um, that's a great question. I started doing research right about the time I finished my first book, which was the mid-1990s. And as when you finish a book, I thought, oh, I have some time to go to the movies and see what's out there and read things, newspapers, popular, whatever. And, um, and so I started to notice both at the movies and in, you know, the New Yorker or New York Times or whatever, this thing called disease emergence and this fascination with these um, hemorrhagic fevers, these really dramatic things. Ebola is probably the most familiar, but lots of them. And I thought, what is this about? And at the same time, I had gotten really interested in my first book because I was looking at the medical exams of the early 20th century. I got really interested in the figure of Typhoid Mary. And one of the things that fascinated me was how similar some of the things I was hearing and seeing were to what I was reading about Typhoid Mary. So that really stuck in my mind. And looking back, I also think I moved to New York for graduate school in 1980. And of course, HIV came onto the scene within a year or two of that. And I had a lot of friends who were immediately affected. We were all affected, obviously, just living there and having people we loved get sick and die. So I'm certain that HIV was in the back of my mind as I was thinking about this, but I didn't realize that until I was already well into the book. And I now have a chapter on HIV, my last chapter, but I actually hadn't originally planned that. So I think it's really interesting how our unconscious moves us. Just to follow up on one of the things you mentioned earlier, I mean, having read quite some literature at this point, it seems to me that the conference you were referring to, I think it was 1989, has become in a sense mythical in itself, right? I mean, it's being referred to as the beginning of this major process or trend, I guess, that continues until today. So what's your take on that conference? And really, how did you hear about it back in the mid, late 1990s? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And sorry, I forgot to go there. Laurie Garrett's The Coming Plague, which was a, a, one of the best-selling science journalist works that I was reading at that time, was an account of that conference or included an account of that conference. So I went back and did research on the conference and I read the publications, the science publications that came out of that meeting. And I do believe, I mean, it, it is the beginning of the circulation of this idea of disease emergence. It gets really pretty much coined. I mean, I don't know, there might've been people using it before, but it becomes a conventional part of the vocabulary. And what I track in Contagious is how these conventions that I'm talking about, the analysis, the vocabulary, certain way, you know, the understanding of this problem at all, certain ways of thinking about and talking about this problem circulated in the work that came out of that meeting, got picked up by the mainstream media, popular journalism, et cetera, like Laurie Garrett, like Richard Preston's The Hot Zone, and then moved into popular fiction and film. And really that circulation instantiated it as the conventional story that I'm calling the outbreak narrative. Did you have any chance to interview any of these individuals? No, unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm a literature scholar and I didn't really think to do that. I would do that now, but I, I didn't think to do that then. Somebody I would love to talk to is Joshua Lederberg, who was one of the organizers 
And I just think it would have been so interesting to talk to him. He just, fascinating character. I did meet, I was on a panel once with Stephen Morse, who was one of the organizers. And so I did get to talk to him, but the book was already out by the time I met him. So I've used his, his thinking since, but I haven't been able, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough to figure out to do that for the book. So the conference itself was a break point. Could you maybe sketch out for us what the outbreak narrative or the disease narrative before that looked like? And then maybe we can turn to what it looked like afterward as well. Well, what I, what I look at is specifically these diseases, disease emergence. And so I don't have an outbreak narrative from earlier. I think it was just people talked in different ways about these diseases. But I do think it's important. This is, I think, what they were reacting to. So I guess it's a disease narrative of some kind, which is sanguinity. So with the eradication of naturally occurring smallpox in the late 70s, there was a sense that communicable disease was going to be a threat of the past. It was going to be, you know, a minor problem. And in fact, people who were in these specialties were telling their, you know, students or trainees, don't go into this. This is not going to be an exciting field. The CDC, which had emerged to deal with communicable disease, began to look at epidemics of things like obesity or cancer. So there was a whole move not to worry about communicable disease. And of course, that was punctured by HIV. And HIV was not seen as part of a phenomenon, but as a kind of strange anomaly until I think, I mean, I'm sure some people did, but sort of publicly until it began at the end of the decade to get put together with things like Ebola Hantavirus, Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, Marburg, etc. So could you tell us a bit more about who's using the outbreak narrative and how they're doing that? I don't know if using would be the word because I'm not arguing that this is something that anyone's aware of. I'm saying this is like how information is circulating in popular culture. I, I think un, until, you know, I, I mean, it's not like someone says, oh, let's talk in this way about diseases. What I would say is how it's being reproduced. So it's not deliberate or conscious, but it's being reproduced by the circulation of the details, as I mentioned, through the media and popular culture, but also by inherent biases or assumptions that are implicit in the language of the original scientists. For example, one that we're still hearing, microbial warfare. So my argument is this thing is circulating in language that has become conventional, in images that have become conventional, in plot lines that have become conventional. And so it gets picked up because it's a compelling story and people seem to want to hear it by popular fiction and film, by the mainstream media. Every time there's an outbreak, you get the same language. It's what people are accustomed, how people are accustomed to thinking about it. Does, is that what you mean by use or? I mean, yes, in a sense. But don't you think that some of the groups you've mentioned, for example, the media or the people who create the popular culture most of us consume, wouldn't they have interests in trying to propagate this outbreak narrative, for example, to sell more newspapers or so? Well, that, I don't think they'd recognize it as a narrative. You know, when I've talked to journalists, they don't recognize this as a narrative. I don't think they're particularly conscious of using particular vocabulary. I think it's what comes to mind because it's become so conventional. So when you want to write the story, that's what you do. I do think, and this is not the journalists, this is the you know publishers, there are sensational headlines that they want. And that has been part of the problem if you want to see it as one problem that I've um, been discussing is the sensationalism of something like this, where I think someone might be using it in the sense that you mean is popular culture. This is going to sell books. It's a detective story. It's a mythic, you know, good and evil kind of story. It's got a plot line people are interested in. People go to the movies, you know, outbreak, contagion, uh, 12 Monkeys, which is a little bit different. That's, you know, um, an earlier version. But in any case, all of those, that kind of film sells. And the, 
the books about itself. That's why there are so many of them. So yeah, it gets picked up in that sense as a story, though I think that the people who are doing it that way think, oh, this is something that's going to sell and we know people are interested in this kind of film or this kind of novel, rather than that they recognize that there's a convention that is influencing how we think about and respond to this public health threat or global health threat. So you're saying they're doing it more intuitively than consciously? Yeah. I mean, the, the ways in which it would be conscious would be, oh, people are really interested in this story, just like they're interested in a story about nuclear holocaust or they're interested in an environmental disaster. They're not thinking, let's perpetuate a way of thinking. They're thinking, oh, this is a story people find interesting. We want to make a film. Let's make a film about this. Or I'm going to write a novel and this is the kind of novel that sells or it's appropriate to my plot line or something like that. There are probably people out there who want to educate people about the threat. And so they make a film for that reason. A lot of the environmental devastation films, I'm sure, have have that maybe and certainly contagion might have had, you know, something of that in it. I it's hard to say, you know, what somebody was consciously thinking, I don't know. But I don't feel like somebody saying, oh, we've got this outbreak narrative that reinforces all these stereotypes and stigmatizes certain populations, because that's another effect of this, right? That certain populations, behaviors, places are stigmatized. And someone says, oh, let's stigmatize this population. I don't think, you know, I'm guessing that that's not a conscious motivation for telling this story. It's more like, oh, the story is going to sell books. And what are some of the stock features that I can put in it that, you know, people will be expecting or just that come to mind because the story has circulated so many times. I'm really looking at a discourse. And where do academics fall in this discourse? Or how do they participate? Do they try to change this discourse or do they just reproduce it? So, I mean, the academics that I know who work on these issues are trying to intervene, right? I mean, if you look back at, and and this this was not the thing I call the outbreak narrative, because the outbreak narrative that that I look at is actually responding to HIV in the sense that the outbreak narrative is about an outbreak that gets resolved. HIV is a pandemic that certainly when I was writing this was not resolved and it's still not resolved. I mean, it's, it's a treatable disease to a certain extent now. It is not a contained disease. It's still out there. So looking back at people who were even writing during HIV, one of the main things academics were writing about in my world, right, human, humanities academics, were the stigmatizing that was happening. Um, the, the discursive problems, the ways in which people were reinforcing biases by the way that publicly the disease was being talked about and treated. So if I go back to some of the features of the outbreak narrative, ultimately there's closure in the outbreak narrative. The outbreak narrative ends up with, you know, if you're talking about the extreme of like science fiction, a mythic battle between medical science on one hand, epidemiologists, scientists, researchers, et cetera, and uh, disease detectives of various kinds on the one hand, and a kind of animated virus that wants to reproduce itself. And, you know, often because it wants to save the earth from the human virus, that kind of thing. And there's a kind of mythic apocalyptic battle over the fate of humanity and medical science saves the day. If you look at the more sedate journalistic versions, again, it's about how, you know, for instance, in um, May 2003, there was a special issue of Newsweek, and it was all about how medical science saved the day, genotyped the first SARS coronavirus, and we were able to contain the, the epidemic. That story is both very reassuring and it reinforces precisely the message that the 1989 meeting was trying to argue against. It basically says to people, you don't have to change anything. You're fine. You know, we'll solve this. One thing we've seen is lining up kind of neatly with how you've described it is in our research on the Justinianic plague or even on the Black Death, say, the division in how people focus on it has changed. Now, 
the heroic narrative, I think, is not there in the Justinianic plague. I don't think there was any heroic doctor stepping in and, and ending it, as far as I know. But what you do have is something very similar, which is an increased focus on the disease and what it does and how people tell that story. So I'm wondering if you've seen a change perhaps in after your book came out, has it influenced how people think about it and write their own histories of disease in the past? So my argument in the book is that this story is a crisis narrative and that what it tells us is that the only way to address this is quarantine vaccination and, you know, pharmaceuticals. And if you're in the middle of a crisis like we are now, that's true. What we're not looking at is the larger story of what are the conditions, environmental, economic, policy, that allow an outbreak to happen in the first place and allow an outbreak to become a pandemic. And so, you know, I would love it. I would love to be able to say that my book made people start thinking differently about this. (laughs) I would not make that claim. I think my book called attention to certain things that within the academic world, people began to pick up and pay attention to. I could say that. And I was really gratified by that. I was not the only person writing about this. Other people also were doing it. And I think in general, people began to pay more attention to how we were looking at these things and talking about these things. And I was part of a trend more than that I started something. I would not say I did. I do see, however, that the narrative publicly has begun to shift and that more and more journalists began to look at that bigger picture. And the journalism became less sensational. People were warning against an epidemic of fear. Certainly, like I remember that during the H1N1 and the 2014 Ebola pandemics, people were saying, well, you know, there's fear itself can exacerbate this problem or be its own problem, uh, certainly feed into bias and all of that. So I do think I've seen a change and change like that is never from one thing. We've also seen with the Black Lives Matter protests that we have a population that's more willing to think about structural racism, for instance, and its relation to global poverty and economic inequity worldwide and in the U.S. So I think all of those things have produced a a more robust analysis of what this problem is that we're living through now and where it's come from and how we need to address it. Do I think I see a complete solution? No, (laughs) but I definitely see a changing awareness of these factors. And, you know, I'd be very gratified to think my book was even a tiny part of that. That's why we do the work we do. But I, you know, I can't trace that in any way. So I'll tie into that. The outbreak narrative, the way you've described it, has been around for about a quarter century or so, from the mid-90s until today. And that clearly means it has a lot of staying power. It's persistent enough and attractive enough for large audiences. And what exactly would make it so attractive to your mind? Yeah, no, I think a couple of things. I think one thing is what we've touched on, that it was it's really reassuring, right? And, you know, one of the things I argue, and I've, I've sort of said this, but um, to be a little more clear about it, is I see the outbreak narrative as at least in part a response to HIV. So there was all this sanguinity that, oh, that was the question you had asked before, like what was, you know, what was the outbreak narrative before? There was all this sanguinity, then you have HIV, HIV punctures the sanguinity, but there's nowhere to, you know, it's hard to know how to think about it. And so you have all these other things that are contained and you can say, don't worry, there are these things, communicable disease is still a threat, but we've got it under control. So I think there's something very reassuring about that. And also that there's no need for the big structural changes that implicitly the 1989 meeting was calling for. Like we had to change development practices on the everyday, on the grand scale. And that's an economic argument and a policy argument as well as a environmental and health argument. And people, as we see with the environmental crises we're facing, people don't wanna make those changes in their lives. Not on the large scale, not on the small scale. So this, this narrative tells us, don't worry, medical science will solve it. But I also think there's one other thing that's a little bit harder to grasp, and that's more in my 
wheelhouse as a literary scholar and a follower of brilliant Bruce Lincoln, who's a philosopher of myth. He writes about myth, among other things. It's brilliant work. And, you know, what is the appeal of myth? And I look at these things as mythic because they are, they follow, they're on this apocalyptic scale, right? They're a battle for the fate of humanity. They invoke the deep past. They invoke the supernatural. The virus has a kind of metaphysical, supernatural aspect to it, even in science. Like I can see it in the vocabulary, but I'm really talking about pop culture here, or pop culture at least draws it out. And what ultimately it is, is an affirmation of humanity, a sense of renewal, a sense that we're okay as we are. And, you know, in light of all of the threats that humanity is facing, there's something here about how medical science not only will save us, but it represents our staying power. It represents the fact that we are a teleology, Darwin be damned, right? You know, we're, we're not going anywhere. And I think that there's something incredibly appealing about the mythic. You know, we think of ourselves in contemporary culture as not being governed by myths, but my argument is we are. We just don't recognize them as myths. They don't look the way myths used to look, but they are still all about the supernatural, the divine in a, in a very broad meaning of that term, and the special nature of humanity. And I think that's this story really taps into that. And that's one of the reasons it has this profound staying power. So I'd like to follow up on that too. You say the outbreak narrative is attractive partially since it's reassuring. Now, over the past decade or two, there has been a proliferation of zombie movies or more broadly zombie content, movies, but also video games, comics, books, and so on. Now, at least the ones I've been watching and reading, so those are not particularly reassuring, right? They tend to be apocalyptic and represent the end of the world in various ways. So what would be your take on that? Are zombies part of the outbreak narrative, in your opinion? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And for anyone interested in zombies, I highly recommend a book by Sarah, Sarah Juliet Lauro, L-A-U-R-O, really terrific book on the whole history of the zombie. And there's a lot of really good stuff out on zombies. I mean, I do think the ones I've seen, I would call outbreak narratives. Now, of course, zombie films preceded outbreak narratives. There's lots of analyses of zombies in capitalism and zombies in all kinds of things. And I think zombies have a lot of different manifestations in different places at different times. So I, I, you know, I, can't, I can't get into all of the zombie work because it's vast. I will say that the zombie narrative post-outbreak narrative often fits the outbreak narrative. World War Z, I Am Legend, Zone One, among many others. And you're absolutely right that some of those, I Am Legend back in the you know, late 50s was already apocalyptic without, you know, that the, the, the last human being doesn't make it, right? Sorry if I ruined the, the book. But one of the things that I, that I think is interesting is that it became a film, it was many films. Um, last Man Standing, I think, is one of the, the first one, and Omega Man, and, you know, most recently, the Will Smith, I Am Legend, each one has more survivors. Think about it, right? So the Will Smith, the humanity does win. I mean, maybe a lot of people have been wiped out, but humanity has survived and there's now a cure and they're going to be okay. And so I do think post-outbreak narrative, the zombie films are more reassuring. Zone one is not, but that's not popular fiction. It's a, it's a more highbrow variant, right? Which is a different thing. All the World War Z, all the zombie, um, more pop culture versions that I have seen have ultimately humanity triumphs. And so I do think it fits the outbreak narrative. I'm not the hugest fan of zombie narratives. I much prefer vampires, but um, for a variety of reasons. But the other thing about zombies is they've begun to morph. So it used to be the vampire at least in the last few decades, has been very sexy. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and all that. That The vampire has been very sexy. The zombie is disgusting and, you know, has no brain and whatever. 
but there are there are romance zombie movies, right? There's like now a, there are yeah. now there are, and that's what I'm saying that we we now have made the zombie a more appealing character, more human. It, you know, all of that I think is is veering in this direction. The other zombie movie I've been recently watching is The Kingdom, which is on Netflix. So I'm going out of segment here because sometimes we often talk about movies at the end of these episodes. But this is a Korean film set in a early modern Korean setting in which the king has, they turn him into a zombie to make sure he stays alive, actually, and then there becomes a larger zombie narrative. There you go. So they're not that attractive either, but that's, you know, a different... Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely think the, that, that the majority of zombie films post-outbreak narrative that certainly that I've seen fit the outbreak narrative. And I, I would really underscore the Will Smith because you watch that story get retold from the late fifties till, you know, a few years ago and it gets progressively human centered survival. You know, the, the, it's a really terrific book by Richard Matheson and his really interesting ending gets lost. It's an interesting take. So to bring the conversation back to World War Z, which was a good example. So yes, you could see it as reassuring and as humanity triumphing at the end. But a different take would be, I mean, at the end of the movie, and again, sorry if I'm spoiling it for anyone a ticket or so after the movie came out. But at the end of that film, Brad Pitt discovers that the way to make yourself invisible to zombies is to infect yourself with a lethal disease. So instead of turning into a zombie immediately, you're going to die anyway, but only in a year or two. So yes, that does buy time, but it doesn't really solve the problem. Yeah. So two responses to that. That's, that's so interesting. It's not what I remember. Maybe because I don't think the book ends that way. No, the book is completely different than the movie. Right. And I mean, the, the problem with the movie is I saw it on a plane and I <laughs> I you, obviously don't remember it very well. You know, there's a plane crash in the movie, so it's not exactly an ideal <laughs> movie to watch on a plane. I, I, I wonder if, I mean, the other way to look at this, and I think, you know, this is for a longer discussion, perhaps another time, but it, you're highlighting, I think, a really interesting way to uh, analyze a lot of these movies, which is to take the same movie and see how it's remade over time. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, the other way that's obvious to do this is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that is a profoundly over the four or so mainstream movies. There's others too. That is actually a profoundly pessimistic movie. Right. I mean, well, no. And that's again, and, you know, I write about that one. So I, I just, I do want to, though, respond to one more thing about what you just said about World War Z before I get back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is that. It is interesting because right now, one of the most promising lines of research for something like cancer is to infect people with really awful diseases to kick in their immune system. And this was a theory from early 20th century virology that kind of didn't get a lot of play until fairly recently. I know, for instance, at Duke, they've been doing research with glioblastoma and polio. And they've had, I, you know, I haven't been keeping up with it, but I know they had some success with it at, at a certain point. And there's, so there's a real idea that has um, been tracking through medicine that infecting yourself with something might be a cure. And so I'd be interested in going back and looking at this film and trying to figure that out. But I was actually thinking more of the novel because I don't, I don't remember the film as well as I do the novel. So just to clarify, you're saying that the experiments at Duke are infecting, I guess, animals with polio, an attempt to get their immune system to kick in and defeat cancer? Um, first of all, they've used it on people. So it's oh. actually beyond animals. I don't know the research well enough to explain what they're doing and how they're doing it. But I know that they have been using or what I remember, and this was a few years back, that they were using the polio virus, obviously an attenuated version, as part of treatment of glioblastoma. And that there had been some success with it. I don't know how long-term, and I don't feel comfortable speaking on it beyond that, but I can say it's not the only example. There are other viruses. I think they're doing, I think there's something going on with 
uh, melanoma, stage four melanoma, where there's been some success. It's part of immune therapy that they're exploring. And I, again, I don't know enough about it to comment on it, except to say what you've said to me about the end of a film I didn't remember makes me want to ask that question. Like, were they thinking about some of this research potentially? Because this research or this idea has been in play for decades. Like it, the research is more recent, but there were people working on this early in the, in the century, early virology. So maybe now's the time to take up some oral interviews with some of the people doing the movie. Thank you. Yes, I should do that. Um, so getting back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the most... Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember the various versions of it. Like Robin Cook has a version. and so there's there the 50s, so many. Yeah, there's the 50s version, the 70s, the 70s version, the early the 90s. 93 and... 2007. 2007. Yep. Yeah, and there have been others. So there are, like Robin Cook did a variant. There's a lot of... I mean, it's a hugely important myth, obviously, because we keep retelling that story. And we tell it in lots of different ways. And again, the, the bleakest one, which is also, to my mind, the best one, was 1978. And the 1956 was supposed to have a bleaker ending, and Hollywood didn't let them do it. Those are the two really good Invasion of the Body Snatcher movies. I don't think any of them since has been any good, to be honest. So I will say that. Having said that, and having made all kinds of enemies, I'm sure, out there, the more recent ones, as with... I am legend, they're more optimistic. Now the novel was optimistic. The novel ends very optimistically. So it, it's, you know, as opposed to I am legend and I am legend to my mind is a quote better novel. Although I love the original, um, the Jack Finney, I can't help it. It's, and, and clearly he captured the public imagination, the collective imagination massively. The fact that everybody you know, retold in book form and film form that story. But the more recent films tend to emphasize the human survival. And again, that, that's all post outbreak narrative, right? That there's something, maybe it's HIV that did it where people want, don't want that to be apocalyptic. And there are exceptions, but it's, it's the vast majority has human survival at its end. Yeah, this might be, a, as I said, a longer discussion, because the other question is human survive. I'm thinking of the 2007 version, which is probably the worst version, I might add. <laughs> but in that version, humanity surviving doesn't exactly seem to be a wonderful outcome, right? <laughs> I mean, there's all these news scenes of the aliens are in charge. And uh, they fix the world. They, they fix, fix the, the world, world right? You know, there's peace, peace between everywhere. <laughs> and then the 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 humans come back and all of a sudden there's more people being killed in Iraq again. True yeah. that. But, it, but it's also, we don't like benevolent dictators in the U S even benevolent dictators, you know? So I think that the message is of that film is sure. The aliens made things better, but at what cost? And we got to live warts and all. And I, I think about, I mean, a much, much, much more brilliant, exploration of that question is Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy, known as Lilith's Brood, um, where there is this utopian seeming, but in a very complicated way, alien species that does fix everything. They're ecological, they're pacifistic, they're just this wonderful culture. But they're, you know, as one of my friends puts it, one of my colleagues, benevolent dictators. And so I don't read it that way, actually. I, I have a different reading of that. I'm writing about it now, and I have a different reading of that trilogy. But what she really explores is these fundamental failings of humanity. And, and I think she raises it as a question that I personally don't think she resolves. And I have had this debate going with colleagues and students for years. I think she ultimately says, here's a clash of ways of thinking about the world, humanistic, ecological. They're also, the Owen Kali are also biotechnicians or aliens. They're very much, it's, she's very much engaging with Henrietta Lacks and biotechnology. 
And I think she's raising the question of like this, these irresolvable contradictory values that we have. And those are great questions for us to be thinking about. And that's what makes it so brilliant is that she gives us the complex version and she doesn't resolve it. So that actually is a good segue into another question. For me, as a non-American, the American response to COVID has been kind of along those lines, right? So, I mean, there is some conflict between individualism and freedom, whatever that means on one side, and trying to reject a benevolent or maybe not so benevolent dictator or, or the state more broadly on the other side. But in this context, how would you see the outbreak narrative play out in the context of COVID? So that's a really hard question to answer because the outbreak narrative has to have an end. And I have no idea how this, what the end of this is going to be and what kind of story we're going to tell. Because, you know, the outbreak narrative has never been a global pandemic in real life. HIV was a global pandemic and the outbreak narrative was about other diseases. So I can't say whether COVID-19 is going to conform to the outbreak narrative or not. I've heard a lot of the vocabulary of the outbreak narrative circulating, but I've also heard, as I said earlier, and the Black Lives Matter protests are part of this, a much more structural analysis, which is what I've been arguing for and others have been arguing for. The one thing that I would say is one thing that I keep hearing, and I've been trying to write about and against is the war metaphor, the microbial warfare. And I'm hearing that all the time with COVID-19. And that metaphor is at the heart, to me, of a lot of the problem, right? And I go back to um, a really terrific book from the 60s or 70s, Metaphors We Live By. Really terrific book. And what they argue is metaphors both tell us about how we see the world and reinforce these implicit biases and assumptions about how they see the world, we see the world. I go back to Darwin and earlier for this, but where nature is this thing that there's an almost us, them, this is what I'm writing about now, an almost us, them relationship between humanity and nature. It actually goes back to the enlightenment, maybe earlier, Hannah Arendt talks about it. And, and once we have that relationship, it's very difficult to see the problems clearly. So if we have microbial warfare, we have these viruses that are cunning, that scientists use this terminology. They're cunning and they're thoughtful and they're bringing this problem and we have to outsmart them and whatever, as opposed to what the scientists are also arguing for. I think of Stephen Morse talking about, we are traffic engineers, we humans. We're the ones who are transporting these microbes around the world. We are the ones, and this was the 1989 meeting, creating the conditions that allow outbreaks, as I said before, and allow outbreaks to become pandemics. And so the notion of microbial warfare is really misleading. And it, to me, is keeping us from thinking as clearly as we should about how we're operating the world. And one more quick point about that Joshua Letterberg wrote a piece in 2000 in Science Journal called uh, Infectious History or something like that, where he says one of the things we have to do, and he's not talking about what I'm talking about here about how we act in the world, but how we think about our relationship to microbes in relation to how we begin to treat disease and think about immunology, et cetera. He says we really have to get rid of the war metaphor and instead have an ecological metaphor. And again, he doesn't mean how we live in the world. He means the microbes in our biome, in our micro, you know, our, our biomes, the, the ways in which most microbes, most bacteria that inhabit us as human beings is helpful and positive. And how can we, quote, enlist the aid of those microbes in preventing or fighting disease? And so even there, just the concept of thinking about how we're going to treat disease, let alone the environmental questions that Letterberg, Morse, and company were raising in 1989, even the scientist is saying, the, and he says, the first thing we have to do is change our metaphors. So I totally agree that the war metaphor is more or less ubiquitous. And yes, I've been seeing it as well since the beginning of COVID. But to bring us back to the question of the outbreak narrative and COVID, 
one of the things I'm noticing, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about it, is that we're being primed to think about COVID using the outbreak narrative. And this is really the way I understand the whole discussion about vaccines and cures and how all this will be solved. And yeah, it's not now, but it'll take several months or a year or more. Different people give different answers and the actual amount of time doesn't really matter. But the notion that this is going to be fixed at some point and we'll get back to normal seems to be the working assumption of most people I've heard. And wouldn't this build on the outbreak narrative? Yes and no. Actually, no. I've heard a lot of people saying we're not and we shouldn't get back to normal. And I've heard that from the media. I've heard that from academics. I've heard it from medical doctors. I've heard it from scientists. And, you know, I mean, I think you're right that the general expectation for most people is when are we going to get back to normal? But I don't hear the experts saying that. I hear the experts saying we will never get back to the way things were. Things are different now. Now, in terms of crisis, quarantine, pharmaceuticals, as I said earlier, that is very important mid-crisis. I'm all for those things mid-crisis. The best way to deal with this in the middle of the crisis is those things. The question is, how are we going to think about it afterwards? Are we going to think, oh, this will happen again. Let's just make sure we've improved our ability to treat the disease and our ability to make a produce a vaccine quickly and our quarantine measures. All those are good things to put in place. But what I'm hoping is that the broader analysis I'm also hearing, and I am hearing people talking heads on the media saying this, we can't just think in terms of those things. We have to change the way we live in the world. I'm hearing people talk about the environment, that we cannot continue to ignore climate change. I'm hearing more and more people start to say that in the mainstream media. I'm hearing people talk about addressing global poverty. I'm hearing people talk about universal access to healthcare. 1978, I believe, conference um, on Alma-Ata, it was in uh, Alma-Ata, which is, was in the former Soviet Union. There was a global conference, lots of NGOs participating. And I can't remember, it was a hundred and something, a very large number of nations signed this declaration promising to work towards universal access to healthcare by the year 2000. It was definitely in 78, sure of that. So, and we're nowhere near that. Look at the United States. And I do hear more and more people signing on to the need for universal access to healthcare in the US. So I don't, yes, I still hear the terms of the outbreak narrative. And yes, I still hear the reliance on scientific medicine, technology, et cetera, to fix this. But I also hear people saying that's not enough. And I hear that more prominently. I've heard that more and more with each pandemic that I've been asked to speak to. And I've, heard, I've had more and more journalists be susceptible to that, not susceptible, receptive to that message. But I'm really hearing it strongly now. So I guess the question is whether there will develop enough political will or popular support for these ideas. Maybe not this election cycle, maybe the next election cycle, once we know and hopefully wrap things up around COVID and have a better understanding of what exactly happened and how to prevent this in the future. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think um, there are other factors that will lead to the need for change. One of them is going to be economic. That's a big part of this pandemic. And when people emerge without the jobs that gave them health care and without the finances to afford health care, I don't want to call it socialized medicine because that's so marked, but universal access to health care, call it what you want, is going to be a necessity, it seems to me. And that's one major change that I can't imagine won't at least have more support than it has had in the past. And so the economic factors, I also think the analysis coming out of the Black Lives Matter protests and the ways in which the inequities and the structural racism is at play in all of these things simply has to get addressed. And I think more and more of the population is aware of that. And so all of these things, if we start to address 
anti-black violence as the BLM uh, protesters have made very clear or the spokespeople have made clear, that rolls into other social programs that benefit everyone broadly, like healthcare and education and anti-violence generally and community, you know, more support for community organizations that are deal with mental health and physical health and environmental justice and all of it is part of that that program. And all of those things I hope will bring change. So your message is optimistic ultimately. You're saying that the general public is becoming more and more aware of or thinks about structures such as structural racism or structural inequalities. But it's an optimistic message and I can only hope that's true. Yes, and I do think one sign of it will be voter turnout in November. You know, I will I will have us I will be able to say whether or not I'm feeling optimistic on uh, sometime in November. Who knows when we're going to get the actual results, but or maybe it'll be December, I don't know. But, you know, if there has been a large voter turnout and there's a landslide uh, for the Democrats, um, I will be hopeful. I will say people have heard that message. Now, you know, Biden is not the farthest left, of needless to say, but I think he's open-minded, I think he's listening, and I think there are very, very, very powerful spokespeople who got a lot of support in the primaries on the left, on the far left. Um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. So I think the party has to listen to that. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add... I know, Lee, you tend to be more pessimistic about these uh, changes in outcome. I mean, it seems to me there were, in some ways, right, I mean, if this had only been in China, right, there was a narrative where there was the Chinese doctor who found it originally, right, and I think it worked very neatly in that regard. But at least when it comes to the U.S., I mean, to just echo some of the things you just said, Priscilla, you know, as someone who's living through the last five months of, of, of no childcare, right? No one has ever talked about childcare essentially in America on a national stage, practically, right? I mean, it's basically not talked about, um, nor, nor is maternity leave, nor is any type of parental leave aside from the mandatory, you know, three month minimum, which isn't even necessary. But, you know, I think throughout the course of this, because I was tracking the childcare stuff in particular through everyone's campaign, actually, in the beginning, you only had two people's platforms that talked about childcare. It was Elizabeth Warren and it was Beto O'Rourke. But suddenly, once this hit, everyone put, you know, better maternity leave and better childcare policies into their platform almost overnight. Yep. Um, and it was quite remarkable to see in that regard. Yeah. I just did a, a wallet hub, one of those little things where they ask people to answer a, a series of questions. And it was about women in, in uh, the workplace and politics and access to, you know, senior administration of corporations and politics and all of that. And when I went to the various reports to see what was out there, there's a huge study that was conducted by, I'm not sure who it was. I, I almost want to say health and human services, but it was something maybe they were just um, publicizing it. There was a huge study of global, of women in power in global settings. And one of the points they made was that the countries that were highest had huge, often universal childcare policies, free, universal free childcare policies. Iceland is number one. Rwanda is in the top, like it, it's the Scandinavian country, Iceland, Scandinavia, Rwanda. So I think on that more optimistic note, and I think I'm feeling a little more optimistic after this talk, we can thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really wonderful to talk to you today. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. So I really enjoyed that conversation, Lee, mostly because I really like Priscilla Wald's book and I've long admired her scholarship. So I thought that was a really nice interview and I really enjoyed talking to her. Yeah, I, I agree with that. To me, reading her book was very influential for my research and even more importantly, thinking 
about infectious diseases and how we make sense of them, the way we construct narratives around them and so on, that, that was never really something I even thought about before that. So even though her book is really oriented at the present and our work, or at least most of our work is about the pre-modern past, I think you can probably agree that both of us have used her work to think about how historians have constructed or have thought about the pandemics we study. Yeah, I think that's completely right. I think her book was extremely influential for me in how to think about pandemics in the past through their myth-making, as she really nicely laid out, and their storytelling ability, and really all of that. And while, as you say, she's looking at this precise moment in 89 and the 90s, I think we can see it playing out in other aspects of history research more broadly. One of the other things I liked about her and her work is that she treats popular culture as a serious topic. In a sense, at least among some of our colleagues, popular culture might not be seen very positively or very seriously. It might be seen as something more or less negligible, at least by some people. But I think what she pointed out in the interview today, but also obviously in her broader work, is that this popular culture really fits or or ties into academic work. And I think this is something we've kind of touched upon in previous interviews as well, right? So Robert Alpert, for example, on movies, that was one of the ideas there. Yeah, this is something I've talked to you long about, Lee, which is the way in which popular culture and academia are not different whatsoever. They're simply portrayed differently, perhaps, or talked about, or the discourse, the language is a little different. But the underlying conscious ideas are always there, right? I think that's what she made pretty clear when she talked about how people are using this narrative, right? Well, she made pretty clear that no one uses the narrative. It's just kind of something that's done because of that's the structures, we would say, as historians in the conscious ways or the unconscious ways, I guess, that we think. Yeah, we all just fit reality or or the stories we tell about it to this structure, to this narrative structure. We, in a sense, just fill in the blanks. Yeah. And the other thing I think that was really useful to put this conversation into context with was uh, Vincent Racaniello's conversation where he sketched out for us how he as a virologist lived through diseases in the 70s and even in the 80s and how that was completely different than it was for the students he has now. And I think that neatly fits into much of what Priscilla also just said. Right. In a sense, to kind of tie both those interviews together, at least some of the interview we had with Vincent was really an oral history, a retelling of the past from his perspective. Yeah, and that's why I also asked Priscilla that one kind of oral history question, which is, what was it like for you? Or how did you first pick up these ideas, right? When you started writing this book in the mid-90s, what was life like then? And she gave a very nice answer about that. Yeah, listening to people who actually worked back then instead of roughly being born or growing up at the time for some of us definitely adds a lot of insight and fleshes out the stories. Okay, so I guess we can wrap this part up. And before we conclude this episode, let's talk about something else. And Merle, you've suggested pets during pandemic. Well, I was going to ask you, has anything been different with Apollo, it's your dog, during the pandemic? Well, he obviously has been having quite a good time since we're with him 24-7, which was not really the case previously because we had to go to work and leave him at home. And we adopted him from a shelter, but he still has some separation anxiety and he doesn't really like to be left alone. And to be honest, having him was very helpful for us too, since it forced us to walk him three times a day throughout the pandemic. And just getting out of the house and walking around was very helpful for me, at least. So yeah, that's that's Apollo during the pandemic. And what about you, Merle? You don't have pets now, right? Last I know, at least. I mean, maybe you're going to adopt some hamster or fish for your kids. My my nephew is really into fish. No, no, no. We haven't adopted a pet. I was mostly asking because there's going to be a... I think a small litter of dogs, the house next door to us just sold. And so we just met the new woman who owns the place and she mentioned she's going to get a litter of dogs. So that should be interesting to have them next door. 
And then the other thing that's interesting is, you know, we're talking about a dog. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But Lucy is getting much better with dogs. Ben is terrified of animals. So that's interesting. But there's a small dog that lives a couple of houses down that was bought during the middle of the pandemic. And so it's being trained and Lucy's getting better and better petting it and, you know, letting it lick her. So that's been really nice to see. The other day she went up to it and the owner was watching it um, with her lagomorph mask on. And so she pet the dog and that was a big victory. Yeah. Are there any foxes you're still seeing in Annapolis? I remember being very excited myself seeing foxes in town there. Yeah, there's still a bunch of foxes running around um, because of the pandemic and a lot of lagomorphs and some cats I saw today running around the streets. You know, it's basically a, a, a dystopian novel, as I think I said a long time ago. Yeah, so with this discussion of pets and their benefits, whether you have a pet yourself or essentially let your children use other people's pets, we can conclude our episode. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced. And if you have a recommendation for a dog we should get, give us a, a shout. <laughs>